Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're opening up skulls and peering inside. My guest is Nina Nesseth, scientist, researcher and author of the first non-fiction we've had on this show for a while, Nightmare Fuel, The Science of Horror Films. It does what it says on the cover. Nina guides us through a century of horror cinema, looking at how we, as a species, react neurologically and physiologically to scenes of blood, violence and carnage. Think of it, perhaps, as a tour of the most haunted house of all, the human brain. Now, speaking of haunted brains, at the time of recording, I was in the depths of Covid, so this was not easy. Trust me to schedule the really convoluted scientific topic for the week that I had brain fog. Nonetheless, we talk about communicating science in this new age of anti-rationality, how our brains can tell screens and life apart, we debate the best ever decade for horror, and we mock the phrase elevated horror. And if you use that term, shame. There's also much dissection of films, cow eyeballs, and the trailer for Rob Zombie's The Monsters. Christ, have you seen it? (laughs) Remember, you can support this show on Patreon and get extra bonus content, including recent stuff from Paul Tremblay, Tim McGregor, and T. Kingfisher, plus more stuff every other week. Just go to patreon.com talkingscaredpod and sign up. Many thanks. But for now, off we go to a bleached pristine laboratory where if you're caught you'll be forced to watch movies and your brain will be probed let's talk scared hello nina and welcome to talking scared hi thank you for having me how and where do we find you today (laughs) Uh, i'm joining you today from uh Sudbury, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I'm doing great. Um, it's pretty hot outside, but uh, I'm lucky that my 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 office is in the basement, so I'm a little bit shielded from the heat. That's good. Yeah. When you say pretty hot outside, have you got this extreme heat that we're getting in the UK? Not. I've. You know what? I've heard things about how UK heat is kind of different from from other heat. So uh, we are kind of in that 30 degree range, so similar. But I've heard that it feels hotter in the UK. It just feels unpleasant. We're just not equipped for it at all. We basically wear the same clothes all year round, apart from one weekend when we put t-shirt and shorts on, and that's our summer. So we're just not equipped to deal with it at all. <laughs> um, anyway, listen, I, I, I always talk about the weather too much. Let's not let's not waste time. You have a new book out. It's called Nightmare Fuel: The Science of Horror Films, and it was published on July nineteenth by who else but Tor Nightfire. They're basically the backbone of this podcast currently. Every other week is a Tor Nightfire title. I always enjoy seasoning this show with a little non-fiction. And I'm someone who has a very particular relationship with horror movies myself. So this conversation could prove enlightening to both me and the listeners. Usually, I start by asking the author to introduce their book. But in your case, I think I need to start by asking about you. So... If you don't mind, can you kick us off by talking about your background and, and how it led you to write this book? Sure. It's actually a little bit of a twisty, turny story, but uh, I'll do my best to, to summarize it. My background is, uh, well, what I went to school for was specifically biomedical biology. I had aspirations to become a, a coroner 
of all things. Uh, but when I, but when I uh, got towards the end of my undergraduate studies, I realized that I, I didn't really want to go to medical school. And instead, I pursued science communication, which is a very broad field. Um, <laughs> but in my case, it, it, it put me on a path where I ended up uh, developing uh, science exhibitions in, in science centers and museums and, uh, and really spending time with people and boiling down some pretty complex uh, science concepts, starting with the human body, but then moving also into like technology um, and physics and engineering uh, for general audiences and and having some really cool experiences there. That's still what I do. I, I, I spend my days uh, developing cool workshops and programs and exhibits uh, for general audiences. But at the same time, I've always had a really big interest in the arts, in writing, in theater performance. Um, so I, I basically started... <laughs> moonlighting as a writer and I found my <laughs> I found my comfortable spot was um, writing at that intersection of science and pop science and where it meets with pop culture um, especially genre fiction um, and film and uh, a, a few years ago I, I I got really into the television series Orphan Black and a friend of mine uh, Casey Griffin who is uh at the time was a PhD student in uh, evolutionary biology. She and I would, would write these, these recaps uh, of every episode of the series. And I don't know if you're familiar, but the series has a lot to do with human cloning and biotechnology and a lot of the ethics around it. Okay. Um, so we were just having a blast on the internet, posting these recaps to Tumblr and eventually started posting them online for the Mary Sue. And we got approached by my now agent, uh, Maria Vicente, to... Uh, to turn it into a book. So we really, by accident, um, kind of tripped on on our own passions and came out of it as as authors. And from there, I I sort of grew my craft and let it take me to one of my other passions, which is really digging into the horror genre and horror movies in particular, because I think they're really interesting in how they're constructed to engage us on like psychological and physiological levels. Sounds like an interesting career. The, the thing I pick out of that, first of all, is that you talk about, you know, getting across really complex information in a digestible way, because that's something this book does incredibly well. And before we get into the horror, though, I do wonder, <laughs> being a science communicator and someone who has devoted their life to, to making science digestible, how much does that infuriate you in our increasingly fact-averse society? <laughs> That really is uh, the question uh, when it comes to science communication right now. As a field, it's grown so much in this age where where the internet and different media, news media outlets have been evolving and changing and growing their audiences in these like huge ways, even in just the last five years. Uh, when I first took the science communication uh, graduate studies, that was a good 10 years ago, and the internet was a completely different landscape. Uh, it's challenging to find the best ways to approach uh, different audiences and as many people as possible with information that will stick, especially when you know that you're fighting an uphill battle against um, the individual biases that people have. Uh, I'm really grateful that my role and my, uh, my career as a science communicator has been 
uh, one in which most of the people that I get to engage with have been on an individual level where I get to have really deep conversations, engaging conversations, and actually, you know, get to the emotional kernel of people's concerns uh, and questions uh, rather than just, you know, putting up a piece of information Mm -hmm. Um, without context. So I've been really lucky in that way. I don't envy other communicators who are doing, honestly, the best work in in the chaotic pool of information and misinformation that is uh, that is the internet. Yeah, it is um, it's just a minefield. I mean, I, I dipped a toe back into anti-vaxxer twitter this morning just to see what they were saying because it it came up as a something came up as a kind of hashtag trending and i clicked on it and my god the things that people still come out with by all means disagree but to just be opposed to rationality as a principle i just find so startling (laughs) i'm not i'm not gonna take down that role too much because i feel like i could you know tie this entire conversation in knots I, i do wonder whether pop culture is the way to, I don't know, package scientific principle, maybe. Because like you say, you've written on Orphan Black and now on horror. And I opened this book, I'll be honest, half expecting another pop culture sociological study of the horror movie. And there are loads of those. I've written some myself. and, And they all basically boil down to one point, which is the horror reflects anxiety. But in fact... Nightmare fuel is something far more ambitious. And for want of a better phrase, it's a kind of hard science analysis of how horror films impact us neurologically. Um, Why did you decide to write about horror as a package for science? So here's the interesting thing. The real reason why I started writing Nightmare Fuel was because every year, like it happens throughout the year, but every year around Halloween especially, um, different news outlets and and pop culture sites will will inevitably bring up uh, an article that's like, this is the science of why we love watching horror movies. Uh, and they all pretty much come down to the same piece. So you mentioned like that sociological aspect and absolutely mm. that's a part of it. Uh, but generally uh, from the science side of things, um, the the only story that ever gets told is that watching horror movies sort of activates the same centers in your brain um, that are triggering, you know, your classic fight or flight response. And while that's that's true, it's it's a lot more nuanced than that. And there are a lot of lot more um, physiological things happening. And like you said, neurological things happening, psychological things happening. And I, I always was sort of irritated is maybe too strong of a word, but quietly bothered by how much of the picture was missing and even how much of the picture that I didn't know about uh, as as a human biologist might be missing. Um, so that's where I started digging and and realizing that whether intentionally or not, there's so much about horror that is constructed really to engage your whole body and your brain. And that we just need a little bit more than fight or flight to kind of, uh, to to tell the full story. So right, so that, that's an interesting answer because you talk about all different kinds of fear in this book. You you peel back the onion on, on the human psyche. Um, and 
it, it spoke to me because I'm continually terrified by horror movies, newly terrified in a way I never used to be before. So it felt like a little bit of a, a salve to some of my some of my neuroses. Um, are you a fan of horror? Are you a fan on an emotional level as well as a academic level? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I've I've very I've been very conscious while writing um, to try and think about the things that I love about horror from a narrative side of things, from an emotional side of things, because it's really easy to ruin the things you love by researching them to death. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> uh, you start entering this phase where you're, uh, and it happened to me while I was writing where, where you're watching a horror movie and you can say, Oh, I can see exactly why this is the shot that was used. Um, it's almost like being a, a film student watching films and seeing the technique instead of the story. Um, so it took a little bit of practice and stepping back to enjoying, uh, because I was thinking too hard about, oh, this would be a good example to illustrate this point in my book. But yes, uh, overall, I do love horror movies. Um, like anyone, I, it's such a sprawling genre. So there are some movies that I love more than others, some subgenres that I love more than others. Nothing that I completely steer clear of, um. No, I don't think there is anything that I super steer clear of. Sometimes I, I, I take a break from more extreme horror and um, and gore and body horror because they, you know, they sometimes need a very specific mood mm -hmm. uh, to to resonate. But uh, but generally, I think that uh, all subgenres are really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that you you avoid gross out stuff sometimes not avoid but sorry you, you mentioned that you're susceptible to gross out stuff and body horror yes and and you mentioned cannibalism in cinema specifically is that an issue for you yes. is that a red flag for you a cannibal movie it, it is but the interesting thing about that is that some of my favorite films end up being ones that feature cannibalism like the the film raw is is one of my favorite films and i avoided it for years specifically because it's a cannibalism narrative uh, <laughs> but it's also a great story so i i think um even though i tend to you know feel grossed out maybe a little nauseated uh, and kind of cringe my way through certain scenes i i'm willing to tough it out specifically for a good story Ah, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. It, that, that's the thing. We're, we're going to come back to this, I think, as the conversation goes on, that strange push and pull of horror. Because it's something I tussle with continually. And I, I am going to struggle not to turn this into some kind of therapy session for myself. So, so yeah, <laughs> watch out for that. Um, but to stick with this gross-out thing for a minute, I mean, I, I'll be clear to the listener, I'm not going to make you go into all the details and the studies and the footnotes and the citations that 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 make this book so so stuffed with data and, and information because it wouldn't be fair to you and it wouldn't be fair to the listener because I think you need time to read this stuff because it's so informative. Um, so we'll skate across some of it. I think is the safe way to do it. But whilst on the gross out stuff, there were two things that really like struck me as interesting. One is that, that this brief aside about um blood injection fears and how it yes. literally has a different impact on the body than any other phobia yes it's a really interesting one and it's not super well understood 
uh, there are some some theories about why, and it's it's pretty obvious when you start to think about it, right? Like, of course, of course, we would be primed to be more afraid of of the presence of blood or of injections um, and injury because those are things that can happen to our bodies and that can introduce a lot of risk, a lot of danger, and we do know that they're very common fears. Mm-hmm. I'm not personally uh, afraid of uh, blood or uh, injections. I'm a plasma donor, so I, I'm po- totally fine. If someone wants to stick a needle in my arm and drain my blood, I can look at it. Um, but but that's not the case for a lot of people. And it really comes down to, I think, having a body and being able to recognize that and recognizing all the things that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've sort of you know, evolved a a healthy fear of things that might make us sick or might kill us. And I do talk about it a little bit in the book. And it is just one of my favorite things uh, is that disgust reaction and how it can be used to heighten fear because, because we're primed to protect ourselves and primed to keep ourselves safe from things that might kill us, including poison, including illness, that our brain has a dedicated sort of nausea center uh, known as the area pastrema that will part of its role is actually to detect like uh, different levels of things in your blood and to uh, cue that sort of nauseated feeling uh, to get you to potentially vomit if it feels like you may have been poisoned. But, but that vomit center can also be triggered by visually seeing something else that might indicate to you that you either were infected by something or ate something that someone else ate that has made them sick it's why when you see someone else vomiting, you also want to barf. Uh, it's just a really interesting phenomenon, and it just pairs with horror so well, which is why the gross-out, gross out, well, a lot of people think the gross-out is cheap. And uh, sure, a lot of things are cheap uh, in, as, as far as uh, movie techniques work, uh, like go, because we, we know they're effective, so why not use those tools? But the gross-out itself is just so effective if not for amplifying fear, then at least making you feel uncomfortable. It's that thing that, that King wrote. I think it was in on writing when he said, you know, like he, he'll try to terrify and failing that he'll try to horrify, but failing that he's not he's not ashamed to go for the for the gross out. That hierarchy has always stayed with me. Yes, yes, I love that one too. It's a, it's it's a passage that always sticks out for me from mm-hmm. King. The bit that got me, because I'm like you, I'm not bothered about blood, really. You can do what you want to me. I've, I've cut myself wide open. I'm very clumsy. Um, <laughs> I remember once cutting my my hand open when I was on living alone. I had to walk into the local like massive supermarket at like dinner time, and I was walking around, literally leaving a trail of blood everywhere I walked, just looking for bandages. You know, people look like reeling away from me in in, in the aisles. Doesn't bother me at all, but. The bit when you talk about violence involving eyes. So you, you point out that that is a kind of, again, a universally bothersome conceit or set of imagery. And you write that, quote, seeing eyeballs pierced, punctured or plucked out of their sockets tends to be where a lot of people find themselves squeezing their own eyes shut. I didn't even need to see those images. Just reading about audition and the razor blade scene in the film, Would You Rather?, just reading about them made me squirm. And I, I even wonder right. how the listeners are faring right now with that quote I just read. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually have a really weird hang up about eye injuries. Like generally, this is, I don't think I've mentioned this 
in any sort of interview before. So <laughs> here's an exclusive. <laughs> I have a very specific fear, and I don't know where it came from, that whenever I'm playing card games, I I am worried that I'm going to get a playing card in my eye Ugh. and just slice my eye no, on it. And okay. I don't know why. I don't I've had this since I was a kid. But it's just a really jarring image that's never left me. Um and so yeah, eyes I I I there's something very fragile and vulnerable about them. It's how we observe the world. It's also I think the big thing about it is that it's something that uh we can see when we look in the mirror. Uh like people are less weirded out by the idea of like, I don't know, maybe like punctured viscera or something like that, because your guts are inside of you. You don't ha you don't get to see them every day, but you do see your own eyes. Um, and I, and I noticed when I first started working at, um, at uh, science North, which is the science center that, uh, that I currently work at. One of my jobs was to deliver uh, cow eyeball dissections. Uh, and so I would, take out you know an entire cow eyeball i'd cut the fat and muscles off the outside i'd point out the different nerves and different parts of the eye um and then i would proceed to take a scalpel and open that eyeball up i would cut around the iris and take it out um talk about how it looks a little bit like a mushroom cap i i editorialized a lot and like literally turn this this eyeball inside out and uh you know, show all the different uh, humors inside and the retina. And, and that was, I did, I did, that was the, not the only dissection I did. I did hearts. I did lungs. I did brain dissections. I did uh, uh, kidneys and stomachs. And, but the one that people were most likely to leave or most likely to even flat out refuse joining was the eyeball, eyeball dissection. Um, and I think it was really that piece of of just recognizing the fragility of the eye and recognizing that it was something that they they could look at it and be like, yep, that is an eyeball. <laughs> oh, I think we've just lost three listeners worldwide who just like basically passed out whilst driving to work. Just, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I find it. I just can't even go there with horror movies. Anything to do with that. I mean, I, I can force myself through them, but yeah, it really bothers me. And I'm not somebody who's in any way like bothered by gore. Um, but a question I want to ask you. Now, this is a bit unfair, right? Because this, this isn't even a question you seem to deal with in the book, unless I've missed it. But it's something that listening to you talk, I've just thought about. So apologies if I put you on the spot here. I know I promised I wouldn't. A lot of the things you lay out in your book, really fascinatingly, are how things that we have kind of either evolved or things that are inherent to us as human beings, as defense mechanisms, how they can be either exacerbated by horror or how they can help us cope with horror or how they have a kind of network with horror, yeah? Um, for example, the thing you said a moment about about disgust, you know, the, the, the disgust part of your brain serves a purpose. It keeps us safe. Um, and obviously horror can can push on that. But what what I find interesting is moving pictures have been around for such a short amount of time, like, you know, the TV or the cinema. It's been a not even a blink in human development. Why is it? do you think that we've been able to develop an ability to know when an image on a screen 
is something that's 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 safe or virtual whereas if we saw somebody in the street doing those things we'd have a a sort of instinctive reaction that's a fantastic question um the short answer is that's something that uh that scientists are still trying to figure out uh, to a degree there's so much about the brain that we don't understand but uh, my thought on that front because of course visualizing things whether they're in front of us or something that we are uh, visualizing internally as we're taking in you know uh, dramatizations plays uh, storytelling like that's existed as long as we've been telling stories, uh, even before we put them on screen. That's one element there where where we've already had generations of practice in terms of being able to uh, experience scary things through a proxy. Mm-hmm. However, that visual element of recognizing something that is being portrayed on a screen as a moving image, as a, as a film, and having a different response to it, I think it, it comes down to two things. The first being, I can only remember one thing now, so it might only come down to one thing. <laughs> <laughs> I had two things in my head. But I think that a, a big part of it comes down to, honestly, critical thinking. Because the fact of it is that we do often, even if we're not outwardly responding in the same way, if we plunked um, some medical imaging devices onto you know onto you and we're tracking your brain patterns, the same parts of your brain in a lot of these situations are lighting up in recognition of you know the patterns and the visuals that you are seeing on screen as they would in um, in those real life situations. That's why we write all these articles about your your uh, fear circuit responding to horrific imagery, even if you aren't actually in any danger. Um, So that recognition is still being processed in your brain in very similarly to to how it would in real life. But uh, humans, we have these really great, well-developed frontal lobes uh, and, uh, you know, higher thinking functions that we're able to take that information and consciously or unconsciously process it alongside with our understanding that we are watching something that's just on screen Mm -hmm. and um and that recognition combined with the scary imagery gives us this output that's that's enjoyment even if we're also a little scared um because we don't actually need to get up and fight or struggle for our lives or run out of the room um we we will maybe jump a little or throw up our arms in defense or close our eyes but uh, we do that sort of knowing that that's enough uh, in that situation. Kind of boils down to exactly that, where our brains are behaving in the same way as they would in real life. But everything else that sort of processes it before it comes out is, yeah, as an action changes. Okay. Uh, or changes that expression. Yeah. Okay. Right. I like that. That's my understanding, at least. That's It was a... a- Nasty question to ask you, so thank you for taking the time to answer it. Um, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned enjoyment. It's a great question. <laughs> it's, it just sort of occurred to me. I think it's the COVID fog. Now and again, something good rises to the surface. Um, you mentioned enjoyment, and that's, I think, the, the crux of a lot of this, because you'll know as a horror fan, I certainly know, you know, we, we constantly have to face this question of why we enjoy 
these horrible things that happen. My wife just does, does not understand why I would watch something that disturbed me at all. Just doesn't get it. And there's a fantastic line, really good line early in this book that you use to describe fear. And you say, quote, we experience fear all the time as a mechanism to protect us from a bad thing that might happen. Horror is the result of that bad thing happening. Now, that can be in real life. That's real horror. That's not a good thing. You know, the realization that something terrible has happened, you have a real horror response. Oh, my God. But as an aesthetic choice, I often hear that horror allows us to safely experience fear in in quotation marks, a sort of abstract virtual version of the bad thing, I suppose. Do you think that holds up? Because I've always had my doubts about that premise. People say it to me all the time, but I'm not sure. But what do you think? I suppose it depends on how you want to qualify safety. Because I think different people have different thresholds for what they would say is safely experiencing horror. Because, yeah, ultimately, I would say, yes, of course, like from that aesthetic perspective and from from the perspective of saying that it is safer to experience that bad thing happening away from you on a screen with the caveat that we know that it's fictional because we see horrible things happening on screens all the time that are very real. Um, And I would argue that being on a screen doesn't make it any more safe. Sure, physically, Mm -hmm. you may be removed from a situation, but there are other costs, uh, psychological and otherwise, that that, uh, may exist as well. And safety being subjective, again, depending on what sort of uh, personal baggage you're bringing into the situation. So overall, I'd say, yes, you're safer in the sense that you may not be engaging in the physical situation (laughs) that's unfolding for characters on screen but you are to an extent experiencing a diluted form of horror as long as you know that what you're seeing is for there for your entertainment ostensibly Mm -hmm. well that yeah you i mean you've spoken straight to the heart of me there really about that idea idea of psychological cost because I've had to pretty much stop watching horror movies. I, I've been very open over the last two years about just the the ups and downs of my mental state. <laughs> but and I find now that watching horror movies leaves me really quite uncomfortable in a way that reading ninety nine percent of books just doesn't. You know, um, and I have to be quite selective now about the type of horror films I watch because. That that's all about you know what you said about about not being safe. I mm. go and put a movie on that's about certain things, and that and this list of things is getting longer. And I I go into it already worried that it's going to leave me disturbed and full of intrusive thoughts and not and with with a kind of lasting scare. I suppose I I go into it with that being the worry the worry before it even starts. Before the film even has, has a chance to exert its actual own influence, I'm already thinking this could fuck me up, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't feel safe watching horror movies unless they are a kind of jump scare thing, you know, because to me they're much like a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. I describe them as, as films that are like ghost trains or fun houses, things like James Wan's The Conjuring for example. It's just a pure adrenaline release. It's like going on a fairground ride. 
but they are the only films I can really safely watch. The minute it gets more insidious these days, and I love horror, I, I'm struggling. Um, so this is well, not really a question, really, is to say that you, you, you've kind of given me a framework to understand, as you said, that psychological cost. Yeah, I think it really does vary from person to person as well. And and I think those like mental state and really recognizing where you're at and what kind of narratives and what kind of imagery you can take in at any given time is very important. Um, I, I have people close to me who like horror, but cannot at this stage in their life because of specifically because of traumatic experiences, can't watch horror with sexual violence mm-hmm. or with uh, any sort of strang- strangulation or choking scenes. Because uh, similar to what you described, if they watch these things, then it's beyond just being scared for fun. They're putting themselves into situations where they might have intrusive thoughts, where they might have actual nightmares um, or, or just at the very least be put into like a very uh, poor mental state or emotional state for the watching. So at that point, the trade-off is kind of, is it worth it for them? Whereas there are other people who have had similar uh, traumatic experiences who see horror and seeing those narratives that may have some resonance with their personal experiences as a sort of exposure therapy, where they do see safety in seeing those things exposed because they're sort of able to experience it from the outside and maybe find some recognition or maybe find some closure if the narrative um, allows uh, the person going through these experiences to sort of come out on top. Um, so it's it really depends on the person and where they're at. Um, some people find these narratives very therapeutic and for other people it can be um, beyond, like, at, at best, uncomfortable, at worst, um, re-traumatizing. Well, I'm really glad you've said all that because it's it's led straight into what I wanted to talk about next. It's almost like we planned this. Um, because <laughs> you have what I refer to as the, the, the fun fair horror movie. And I, always, I don't know why. I always think of The Conjuring for that. I don't know why. It just seems as, as, it, as, it, as it all, but it's never particularly disturbing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the flip side or at least another strand, is something like torture porn. And you point out in the book that people don't tend to watch films like Eli Roth's Hostel or Martyrs or Touristers, which is a great underrated gem, by the way, that they don't tend to watch them for enjoyment, that it's more about catharsis. And I've always been a little bit confused about this supposed catharsis of seeing really horrific images can you elaborate a little on that on how that works so that's an interesting one because no one really and i won't say no one i'm sure there's someone out there but like in general people don't take joy in watching people suffer for the sake of suffering um i'd like to think that people don't take that enjoyment um and a lot of these films like the three examples you just described to tend to have very political underpinnings mm-hmm. uh, and that the the stories are usually about something else, which is true. I know that's a sort of an easy thing to say, uh, but it's true for, for any sort of film, but it's especially true where extreme films or uh, torture porn comes into play. I don't personally feel a lot of catharsis when I'm watching these films, uh, but I've seen that expressed by people who do enjoy them. Um for some reason, again, like I, I go for the, I go for the narrative above all else, and I tend to, 
<laughs> said to shrink away from mm. from some of the imagery but even even experiencing that sort of experiencing might not be the right word but but being present and seeing that sort of extreme violence I don't think it's like a purge like release like it's not it's not like we're going out there and engaging in violent acts and then feeling less violent for the sake of it I don't think it's catharsis in that sense um but I do think it is allowing space for for recognizing that kind of violence if that makes sense yeah it does it does make sense i am um, i for the record have always considered hostel a comedy um and i, and I don't <laughs> say that in some kind of oh aren't i tough like edge lord sort of thing i i think it's an outright comedy i think it's a satire i think it's trying to i think it's a, a piss take about american imperialism and and hegemony and 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 just the way that if you go abroad like a dick the world will punch you in the face or or slit your achilles you know Mm -hmm. but i haven't ever finished watching martyrs for example you know i just i i don't get that catharsis from it i don't feel better having watched that stuff and that's funny because I'm I'm the opposite in that sense where i i go around telling people that martyrs is a beautiful movie (laughs) (laughs) um Mostly again for the for the story of it, but I, I feel like uh, Martyrs is such an interesting example of a film that has some horrible violence, but the story that frames it and the senselessness of it is probably the most interesting thing about that film. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting that we have sort of opposite takes mm-hmm. on that on that front. But yes, I feel like I feel like the catharsis is that. There is no triumph at the end of these films. There is nothing that absolves you of the feelings that that you're experiencing while like watching someone have their skin flayed or slowly tortured in some way. Uh, So you're forced to sit in those feelings and experiencing them because there is no uplift at the end. Mm. So it's interesting. You would expect there might be some sort of aftercare required for this sort of film. It reminds me, was it... it, um, I think it was the bad seed originally when it first aired that people had to bring uh, the actress who played Rhoda out uh, after it premiered to be like, look, she's here and we're going to give her, you know, a spanking so that you can see (laughs) that she's punished in the end. Um, And sort of just like have people have that recognition of like, ah, see this bad thing happened, but now we're just resolving it and everyone can go on and be happy again. Uh, But, but these more extreme horrors don't, push a reset button for you yeah like you say you just have to sit in your feelings with them you have to stay there and and there's no that no one comes along and makes it all right again that basically that it's almost like the, the 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 credits never actually roll you know exactly i mean all all of this brings me to this and, and, and i'm hoping that you're on my side with this this brings to this whole, whole idea of elevated horror because i feel <laughs> like horror has got less fun in recent years i mean it's as simple as that do do you agree do you think horror has has changed i think that elevated horror is sort of a silly word Hmm. for contrasting horror projects with a budget and ones that don't have one (laughs) (laughs) okay yeah (laughs) Because if we if we look back and if we even just rewind a few decades before before we started classifying things as elevated horror and non elevated, we always had different strata of of horror films, hmm. like ones that were schlockier and lower budget, 
and I know budget's not the only factor in what we're we're saying for for what's elevated, what isn't. I know there are certain narrative elements as well, but but these sort of strata always existed. It's just now we we seem to be holding some above others and saying, well, this is this is the fancier horror film that will appeal um, to wider audiences because we've tempered some things and we've maybe been a little less experimental than we could be uh, in an effort to to have something that looks really slick. And that's fine. I think there's a place for that. Um, I just I just think we don't need to call it elevated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think everyone's agreed on that. I, it's the most derided term that somehow still gets used. It would it would never actually be used by anybody who likes horror. That's the thing that annoys me. You know, it's always an external commentary that calls something elevated. Exactly. Horror. It it boils back down to like the phenomenon that we used to have um, of films that were very clearly horror films until they started getting award nominations and then suddenly yeah. uh, the messaging around it was like oh well like <laughs> the exorcist was never meant to be a horror film it was meant to be uh an exploration of one man's spirituality yeah okay it can be that and horror <laughs> well, well this is the thing because i i've read loads of criticism i'm not taking credit for this thought because it's not mine but i've read quite a few people who point out that classic horror movies you know take your pick everything from you know, a, a 1950s giant insect movie all the way to something like Scream, you know, they are metaphorically agile in that they can reflect a whole range of changing anxieties. Whereas a lot of these, for what a better word, elevated horror movies like Get Out or The Babadook or the recent Alex Garland's Men, they're very fixed in their meaning. They only have one meaning. And and it, I agree with that. I, I think it's a fairly, you know, robust argument. And I also think that they've lost the fun along the way. They've forgotten how to scare people in a way that they that people enjoy in, in the crudest meaning of the word enjoyment. Do you get what I'm getting at? I do, and I think that's a very compelling argument. I, I think, yeah, I think that there's still a space for them. Absolutely, uh, even if it is like a very narrow um sort of approach to storytelling uh because if that's a story that someone wants to explore then who am i to stand in their way i'll let them play in their small sandbox uh but i do i do hear what you're saying and and tend to agree that uh as a genre as a narrative approach as a storytelling tool is among all genres the biggest sandbox so why would you why would you constrain constrain yourself to you know just a few grains, mm-hmm. uh, unless you you feel that you have a very very compelling story to tell or a very very uh, interesting story to I'm mixing my metaphors now but interesting story to explore. Well, yeah, and and interestingly, you I mentioned right at the start. I you know I said it quite dismissively that you know the sociological studies of the horror film basically all come down to one singular thesis about reflected anxiety. You do still pay some attention to that you do a lovely potted version of it where you move through the history of cinema decade by decade and suggest what each of the you know the decades dominant films reveal about our changing fears um and it is a fun thing to pick at that and i want to ask you first of all what's your favorite decade for horror i have a certain affection 
for for the 90s uh mostly because that's when i came of age uh i know that a lot of people speak uh speak of like 90s horror as sort of like a, a drought where we we spent more time exploring like crime thrillers and erotic thrillers and and while they have a lot of ven with horror aren't necessarily horror themselves and then we're starting to get into like the the meta horrors and those sorts of pieces but I also just love the shape that the 90s took in terms of just like really opening up their uh not market but like really just like targeting all teenagers specifically mm-hmm. um and just really realizing that like it was it was absolutely a capitalist move they were like oh teenagers have disposable income and we can appeal to all teenagers and not teenage boys other teenagers watch horror too excuse me um so then we started getting you know films like the craft and we start getting scream which has wider appeal we start getting um uh, just like all these different sort of summer flings that that are a little bit slicker a little bit more like you don't feel bad putting it on during prime time on television uh, it doesn't have to like be relegated to like the strange two AM channels. I don't know how the TV works anymore. Apparently, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, so I have a particular affection for that. But in terms of uh, going through the horror cycles and those and 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 those historical points, first off, I, I will acknowledge that the like when I do go through it, I do take a very Western view. Um, of those cycles um i recommend if you want to dig into horror history that there are great uh so many uh great books out there that that take really targeted approaches to horror history um and i take sort of a a stone skimming across a pond kind of view on it but you'll notice that even where i was picking things apart is that like a lot of a lot of the dominant themes repeat yes and a lot of them even though i i you know, they'll have different names. They'll be tied to different social movements. Once you boil down different civil and social movements that might be tied to anxieties, it's kind of the same fears, just wearing different hats, uh, where it's just a fear of embracing change, a fear of losing one's uh, perceived status in society, um, a f- like a fear of a change of power and and not knowing uh, what's going on in someone else's head. The number of times that communism and different iterations of communism comes up in in sort of Western film cycles uh, for horror is just like unreal. Um, and I and I so I feel like as much as we can explain it and tie it to very specific um, social instances and in historical instances, it, it tends to be the same fears just by a different name. Yeah, which is why I think my favourite decade is possibly the noughties. Oh, really? Well, well, no, actually. It's, it's the late 60s and the, <laughs> the 70s. But I think the noughties is far more interesting than most people give it credit for. Absolutely. Because, like you're saying, there's this cyclical nature of fear. And then to me, in 9-11, you had this singular moment that changed culture I think well, it changed most. It changed the world for everybody. It changed certainly Western culture um, on its head, and I think that all horror that came in the next sort of five to ten years was a response in some direct or indirect way to that. And it felt like you could 
almost like the, the, the psychology of those films was so transparent. That's what I enjoy about them. You could you could trace them to what they're dealing with, whether it is torture porn or whether it's surveillance horror or zombies, for example. And I've, I've mentioned before on this show that I think the, the, the post-millennial zombie is just training for consumers to become okay to become okay with the murder of faceless mass enemies um and i yeah so i think it all came back to 9-11 but that then prompted a question for me which is one did did trauma change post 9-11 did did or did cinematic depictions of trauma change and and also you don't devote much time to found footage as a phenomenon in its own right which to me is an entire aesthetic that's a reaction to trauma. Yes, absolutely. And you're right. I, I didn't spend as much time as I I would have liked to on uh, on found footage. It's really a fascinating um, subgenre that, like, while it existed before 9-11, you're absolutely right that it, it, it really took off afterwards, mm. like in that decade afterward. And, and in, in, in combination with that idea of we all joke now uh it was a few years ago that it was a joke on tumblr for sure about like the fbi agent that's living (laughs) in my computer and watching me you know scroll through my blogs but we've all we've all sort of slowly been getting used to with the introduction of smartphones with the introduction of new technologies uh with how the landscape of social media platforms has changed we've all been getting used to just like knowing that there may be some part of my device that's recording even what I'm saying to you right now and getting stored or shared or sold to, to some other party and that we all just kind of sort of accept that little bits of ourselves are, are being taken with or without our knowledge and used in some way. We don't know who's at the other end of it. We don't know if uh, if there's information, salient information sitting in a database somewhere, just ripe for someone to exploit. Um, and it's like, we don't know. And that's very scary. Um, it's like, we know we know that there's something, but mm-hmm. we don't know what it is. Um, and and the found footage subgenre on its own, like, puts someone on the other side, right? Whether it's a man with a camera, whether it's... Um, Oh gosh, my brain's just stuck on creep, <laughs> so I need to think of, of other examples. But like, but whether whether it whether it is like a something so, some sort of surveillance, whether it is, and and choosing to put something nefarious at the other end of that digital lens, right? Whether whether human or or supernatural, it's even worse when it's when it's something human. I feel. Uh, in these cases, because then it 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 starts to force us to come to grips with the fact that we are so engaged with technologies with so many unknowns attached to them. Yeah, yeah. I I spent a lot of years writing about found footage and and horror, uh, and how for me it became about dramatizing the the medium as much as the message. So when you watch something like Cloverfield, I. I cannot. This is why I asked about whether trauma is different because I cannot imagine having been in New York on nine eleven, let alone you know in the two towers. I can't imagine having had that experience and then watching Cloverfield and not having a traumatic response because it's not only mimicking the substance of 
trauma, like horror films have always done. It's mimicking the way we actually experienced the trauma, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? It's Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm using the word trauma, as I always do, in this really glib way. I don't really know what the fuck I'm talking about. But, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a pop, <laughs> pop culture sort of top way of talking about trauma, um, it, it does feel like our relationship with media changed after that day because all of a sudden our horror stories were, were making us relive it in the form as well as the content. And it's also changing how we how we are engaging with with these horrible things happening in real time as yeah. well, right? Because uh, the the flip side of that is that now that we're able to see these things happening thanks to cameras everywhere, we feel almost I feel like a lot of people feel a sort of sense of duty as well to engage with these events by taking out their cameras and and mm-hmm. recording and capturing and bearing witness in a way that is that is shareable. And I don't know what that perpetuates on that on that on that trauma front, right? Like it's it's sort of like a it, a weird sense of digital community that's come out of that's come out of these disastrous experiences. And that's and that's one of those things too that stood out for me from ex- the experience of of 9/11. Like I was I was in middle school, I was in Canada, um but there was that was one of the first events like large events in the world where i recall everyone around me also having their eyes Mm -hmm. to the television at the same time where and everyone i talked to um who was again in canada they're like oh yeah we stopped classes and like brought a television into the classroom to to watch things unfold on the news it's it was there was a certain sense of shared experience not in an ogling way but in a truly experiential way of just of of just be of of bearing witness to a horrible event as part of a, a community. Definitely, definitely. I just I, I think it it's been so formative for everyone, whether they know it or not. You know, like just just the seismic moment that has changed the way we engage with horrible imagery forever after. All right, maybe I'm making too much of it. I don't know. It's certainly what I think anyway. Um, the last question, and an obvious question, I think, to ask you, because you are so good at laying out the breadcrumbs of how we respond to horror, both neurologically and sociologically. What do you think will come next in horror? I mean, in terms of content, we're already seeing kind of inequality horror, get out, things like that, you know, mm-hmm. us, the, the hunt, the platform which is a Netflix film that I think only you and I have seen. But then also... <laughs> More people should see it. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's absolutely wonderful. But also in terms of format and the stuff that is more scientific and more in your wheelhouse, that's changing. We're getting these interactive movies that are that are happening and we're getting VR and we're getting all kinds of things. Like, where do you think the interface between the brain, the mind and horror is going to go? That's a really interesting question. I think, I do think that there are going to be more forays into, uh, interface-wise, into those, not necessarily interactive horror, but into certainly more immersive uh, technologies for horror. Um, I think that really where it's at for a lot of horror storytelling is in uh, video games. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that there's some great horror storytelling that happens there, and it's incredibly immersive when you're 
when you're there uh, as a player and participant. Um, obviously, that's nothing new. We've had we've had outstanding horror video games, uh, especially since the mid '90s and beyond. Um, but I think there there's a lot of really interesting narrative work happening, and then also just the the visuals to back it up with like how motion capture has improved over time and how um, experiential technologies like VR and augmented reality and mixed reality um, have come in terms of narratives. um, I think, I think we're going to continue down this current path that we have right now of really digging deeply into social horrors. And I think that's um, where our collective brains are at uh, right now as well. Uh, Before, uh, very soon, I feel we're going to be uh, flipping back into more fantastic monsters. I think it's going to be. Uh, I know we've. I know that um, we've tried to recently uh, come back to the Universal monsters and do the sort of dark universe aspect, and I, it hasn't been super successful. But I think that's mm-hmm. sort of what we'll be coming back to soon. We've revisited zombies, as you mentioned in the early aughts. Um, but I feel like, I feel like that more fantastic horror and monster based horror is, is, is going to be on its way soon. If, if, if cycles are any indicator, um, universal horror monsters came out in the, like in full force during the great depression. Um, I feel like socially worldwide, that's, that's going to be, um, where we're going to turn to once we get exhausted by fine tooth combing um, the very, very pointed uh, social horrors. I might be totally wrong, but that's, that's my suspicion. That would really suit me. I, I love monsters. I, um, I hope we take that part of, you know, that era and, and leave the fascism. That'd be nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I love monsters. Although saying that less than an hour ago or at the time of recording, I first watched Rob Zombie's The Monsters trailer. Have you seen it yet? Not yet. Oh God. It I'm a weird apologist for Rob Zombie, right? But on this one, I think he screwed the pooch. It looks like the world's worst student film. That's amazing. I'm gonna have to check it's, it out right but, after but, we hop But on. not in a good way. It it's it looks dreadful. I can't believe the trailer's been released. It, it puts ugly Sonic to shame. I cannot believe. It, I'll tell you what it is. It looks like Cats, the horror version. Good. You know what? I think I think you said I think you said the perfect thing where it's like it looks it looks dreadful, it looks horrible, but in the best way possible. Think about how and I again I know it's a budget thing and I know, but like think about how forgiving we we are of of the look and feel of some classic horrors especially from like the the 70s and the 80s even the 60s where we're so much less forgiving these days about how a monster is a man in a rubber suit or how mm-hmm. um how buckets of blood look kind of schlocky or look kind of absolutely fake and waxy and i think i think we're past due uh time to come back and and just come along for a ride with a film that's fun uh, but doesn't necessarily have any sort of verisimilitude in how it portrays monsters or violence or whatever it may be. So I don't know if that's the vibe that you caught from from the trailer, and I'm I'm gonna make my own opinion. Uh, but uh, 
but I'm excited for more just kind of like ugly looking horror that isn't, you know, as polished as it could be. Yeah, I always think of Hellraiser as the best example of that. Yes. You know, the, the, the gore is superb. And everyone talks about how great it was. And it is great, but it's not great in the way that people think about gore now where they think, oh, isn't it real? Like, it's not. It, it, again, it looks like something from a, a, a funfair ride, you know, that it's plasticky and um, in, in all the meanings of the word plasticky, it looks very tactile and, and gross, but doesn't really look real, you know. And I, yeah, I know what you mean. I do enjoy that. I'm not quite sure that the monsters is going to quite scratch the itch you're talking about. No, not in that sense. Just based on yeah. based on the IP alone, <laughs> definitely not. But just in terms yeah. of things just not looking great, you know? Yeah, that's what I was I was hoping it was gonna be a Rob Zombie re- revisioning of the monsters with like really horrible, you know, like Sherry Moon being an absolute psychotic like I don't know, I don't even know what the mon monster is called, but yeah, I hoped it would be that. It, it it's not. It it looks like the worst thing I've ever seen. But I'll let you watch the trailer and make up your own mind. Listen, we've talked a lot here about films, as is only right, but I always ask the same two questions. It's a weird pivot this but could you recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why sure um since my wheelhouse is non-fiction i'm going to recommend a non-fiction title um uh, and that would be uh the the book stiff by mary roach um actually if you're interested in mary roach's work at all i think she's a phenomenal science journalist um but stiff in particular is about sort of the curious things that um, that different research uh, facilities and scientists um, will find use for uh, dead human bodies, well, dead human bodies, of course, but for cadavers. Um, and she, she is a bit of an older title, but she goes through just some really interesting, not only interviews, but experiences uh, visiting different sites that use human cadavers for different research purposes to learn about decomposition, to learn about um, explosives, um, I won't go through everything because I would like you to read it for yourself, but it's, it's the first Mary Roach book that I ever read. And she is the sort of writer I aspire to be in that she, uh, does a very good job of, of simplifying the, the science, really finding the story in the science, but also she's funny. And I feel like this would be a good recommendation for anyone who enjoys horror. Obviously the adjacencies right there with, uh, mm-hmm. with cadavers, but it's just really interesting to think of just how many uses there are for, you know, your dead rotting corpse. It doesn't necessarily need to sit in a pine box or become an urn of ashes. Um, there are a lot of opportunities out there uh, for your body once uh, you've shuffled off this mortal coil. <laughs> well, I keep telling my dad I'm going to get him stuffed. <laughs> doesn't go down very well, but yeah, that, that's that's my take on that. No, that sounds that sounds brilliant. That sounds like the kind of book that some of my listeners will absolutely love, and it's I'll put it in the show notes. Thank you. Um, my last question, and this is a particularly loaded one with you, Nina, but what truly scares you? All right. Well, it isn't cannibalism. <laughs> that's just what I avoid in, in horror movies. Um, and like there are different levels of, of fear, right? But I think the thing that I am the most afraid of most of the time is uh, just free fall. The sense of free fall. I hate it. I will never go skydiving. I have jumped off cliffs before 
And it was the most terrifying experience of my life is not having that control while you're in midair and plummeting downward. And even though you come out of it uninjured, the fact that there was nothing that you could do about it between leaving (laughs) a surface and uh, coming back to making contact with another surface uh, is is honestly so scary. I'd never thought of it in those terms before. Yeah, that that weird three seconds of absolute chaos. Right. And there's nothing absolutely like there is no Superman that's going to like swing by and grab you. And even, even if he did, like you'll probably break an arm uh, just by the sudden stop of, uh, of, uh, of your free fall into these like arms of steel, apparently. But yeah, yeah. I, uh, I don't know. Have you ever had this sensation when you're like walking over a bridge or walking along some sort of edge? And I'll do this all the time. I go hiking. Um, but you, you can see that there's a drop-off and there's something in the back of your brain that just says, you could just fall off that right now. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's just like, it's the worst, it's the worst haunting thought to have and to have visited upon you regularly. It's like, no, I would rather not, thanks. So, uh, and I think that's, that's something that freaks me out. The only other thing that I think uh, comes up regularly enough in my life uh, that I can actually attribute to uh, a horror film, specifically, like, okay, just to rewind for a second. Do you know that feeling when you're, and this might just be me, but when you're walking up a set of stairs, but you've already turned off the lights for the downstairs yeah. behind you? It's a very specific feeling, yeah. but that freaks me out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it got worsened in the last few years because of Tony Collette, <laughs> specifically... <laughs> In Hereditary. Uh, oh, right, yeah. Yeah, and it's specifically, yeah. it's, uh, obviously it's towards the end, but when we see her up in the corner, mm-hmm. up in the corner yeah. of uh, of the room, and she's just meant to be subtly there, she channels really that exact same primal fear reaction that you get from suddenly realizing that there's a spider above you. I'm not afraid of spiders. If I see them on the ground, they're great. But as soon as they're above my head, there's something like an Mm. instinct that kicks in that tells me that it's scary. Um, So for some reason, hereditary stuck with me. um, And I think about it pretty much every day. If when I, when I head up the stairs to, to, to sort of turn in for the night and I think about, uh, I think about that scene in hereditary and then I kind of, run up the stairs a little faster and it was to the point where (laughs) where um one time I was running up the stairs and when I got to the top my wife who was already upstairs said like what's going on and I said oh I keep just thinking that Tony Collette's gonna get me (laughs) uh to the point where she uh her response became or her response immediately was oh shh it's okay Tony Collette's not real (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I um, I I really don't like that film. I, I wasn't impressed by it at all. But that scene is phenomenally good. It's so effective because the, it, it it's the way that it it start it, the scene starts and she's up in the corner mm-hmm. and there's something in the way they do it. It'll be some camera trick I don't I don't understand. But she is unveiled to the viewer at the same sort of pace and, and levels of grade de- gradation that it would happen if you'd opened your eyes in, in bed and we'll have taken a moment to kind of get used to the darkness. Exactly. It's incredibly clever and it did creep me out. Yeah. My, my dad, I watched that film with my dad who was like in his eighties and he was oblivious to the fact that anything had happened. 
And I was like, oh God, if we to be so innocent, you know. <laughs> but yeah, 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 that moment was really stand out. Yeah, it really was. I mean, they, they are two two very good choices. Free Fall and Tony Collette. They're both both new ones for this show. We we've talked for a long time here, and I feel like we've only dipped the merest toenail into the the level of information in your book. Anyone with any passing interest in night in in horror movies should definitely give Nightmare Fuel a check out. It it manages to be both highly illuminating, a lot of fun, and and teach things about the brain that can either help or hinder you, depending on your sensibilities. Um, it's out already, and everyone check it out. But Nina Naseth. Thank you for talking scared. Thank you for having me. I'm really not sure that my questions did the book justice this week. I think that I could have done a lot better, despite pointing out early on that Nightmare Fuel is a fascinating look beyond the typical socio-psychological readings of horror. That's exactly where I took us several times. I should have given Nina way more chance to talk about the neurological and the physiological science that's the heart of her book. But, to be fair to myself, my own neurology and physiology were in some disarray, and there was a heat wave on, and I did the best I could to just keep up. I'd heard about this brain fog thing, but I just couldn't believe it. It was like I couldn't keep my mind focused on what either of us were saying. It was really strange, and and a real shame to feel like that when talking to such an expert about such dense, interesting topics. I hope you enjoyed the episode anyway, and if you are fascinated by the brain and the impact of horror, then Nightmare Fuel goes into way more detail. It can actually be a little daunting when it gets into the genetic and the chemical elements of what's going on when we watch these things. At times, I just took entire swathes of the text on faith. I surrendered to the acronyms. But if you're willing to get to grips with it, there's a lot to contextualise how horror works. One thing we did talk about towards the end was found footage. And that's a genre that has come back into vogue a little bit recently, with films like Host and Dashcam and that Shudder documentary that I really do need to catch up on. Found footage has had a really quick renaissance, actually. If you think that The Blair Witch was 99 and the entire genre has had time to take over cinema, die off and be ridiculed, and then come back. It's quite impressive. And before any of you horror nerds start, I do know that it all predates Blair Witch. I know about Cannibal Holocaust. I know about Man Bites Dog. Stand down. <laughs> My point is that I am still fascinated by found footage for all the reasons that I mentioned to Nina. And as social media tightens its grip and misinformation becomes more dangerous and politically lethal, and disaster, especially climate disaster, becomes more regular, found footage only gets more relevant as a medium. And my prediction for the future of horror is that we'll get a whole host of found footage movies that are specifically about the deceit of media, as well as an adjacent return to the eco-horror of the 70s, you know, things like Grizzly and Piranha and The Long Weekend. And when you bring those two things together... It could make some mighty frightening films. I know The Bay does a little bit of that, but think how far it could go. I mean, I'd rather not have either mass misinformation or a dying planet, but I suppose 
really frightening films are the slimmest of silver linings if you squint in the right light. Actually, yeah, no, sod that. Let's just save the planet and fire Fox News into the sun. <laughs> anyway, if you're into phone footage, like I am, I'd recommend reading Alexandra Heller Nicholas's um, Phone Footage and the Appearance of Reality. It's a book that I used a lot when I spent a year researching an article on the stuff I talked about with Nina. Actually, in fact, if you want to read the article, I think the copyright has reverted to me, and I'll stick it on the Patreon this week. To reiterate, if you'd like to become a patron and get bonus stuff whilst helping keep this show viable for me, you can sign up at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or use the link in the show notes. Also, if you want to discuss anything we've talked about this week or if you just want to say hi, you can email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter and Insta at talkscaredpod. And as ever... All reviews are welcomed like you wouldn't believe. Please, if you can, write one. Um, right, well, we roll on. Next week is something a little special. I'm gathering a round table of three fantastic middle grade horror writers to talk about writing spooky stuff for kids. They are Laura Senf, Ali Malinenko and Dan Pablecki, and it promises to be a great episode. And I've read these books... And trust me, if you're thinking, oh, kiddie horror, that's not scary, take it from me, you're wrong. These books would have fucked me up in the most delightful way when I was 10 to 12. So come back for that and find out what books your kids, your nieces, your nephews or your friends' kids, what will they love to read? Until then, peel back your eyelids, keep your eyes on the screen and keep telling yourself... It's just a movie. It's just a movie. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>